So we just read all the way from chapter 15, verse 18, through to chapter 16, verse 15. Even though it is verses 4 through 15 of chapter 16 that we're focusing on this morning. And the reason that I did this was to remind us of the immediate context. Jesus has just essentially said, I'm leaving and people are going to persecute you. We could basically sum up what we just read like that. I'm leaving and people are going to persecute you. Why did Jesus tell his disciples this? Chapter 16, verses 1 to 4 give us the answer. Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Or verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. As I mentioned last week, on the one hand, it sounds more encouraging to say, you will never be persecuted. You will never suffer. Come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Everything will be smooth sailing. It sounds more encouraging to hear that until you actually suffer and until you're persecuted and until you endure great difficulty. And then you go, wait a second, I've been duped because I was told that I will not be persecuted and that everything will be smooth. So then what happens is if you've been told that and you encounter opposition and difficulty, you get confused, you get disillusioned and it's actually profoundly discouraging. To the contrary, when you've been told ahead of time, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus is difficult. It's challenging. People are going to be opposed to you. There's going to be persecution. You're going to suffer. It's going to be a struggle. That sounds, at first, more discouraging. But then when it happens exactly like that, you're like, well, this is what I signed up for. This is what Jesus told me would happen if I followed him. So he must know what he's talking about. And that's actually a weirdly encouraging thought. So Jesus is encouraging the disciples and helping to keep them from discouragement and disillusionment by telling them ahead of time that you're going to suffer after I leave. So that's what's been happening so far in um, the, the most immediate context of the passage we're looking at today. And why didn't Jesus tell them this sooner? Verse 4, um, the last half of verse 4 gives us the answer. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. In other words, this is why I hadn't told you before. I was with you. You didn't need to know. I didn't want to cause you needless stress. But now is the time when I got to tell you. I was with you before. I didn't bother to tell you then, but I'm leaving now. And so now I'm going to tell you. And what was the disciples' heart response to all of this? In verse 6, we read that their hearts were filled with sorrow. Jesus says, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, in this passage that we're looking at today, after Jesus has told them, I'm leaving and you're going to be persecuted, it's going to be a big struggle, after their hearts get filled with sorrow on account of this, Jesus essentially tells them in our passage today, you're only looking at this from one side. Of course, from one angle, Jesus leaving and then being persecuted is enough to fill their hearts with sorrow. Looking at it from one angle to here, even today in the 21st century, look, if you follow Jesus, it's not going to be easy. And Jesus isn't physically in his body here on the earth today. He's actually up in heaven. And so you don't have the comfort and the encouragement of his bodily presence with you. So you're going to have to go through it without Jesus being right beside you bodily. On the one hand, that is enough to fill your heart with sorrow. It's kind of discouraging. You think, man, what if I could only live 2,000 years ago when Jesus was actually on the earth? It'd be so much more easy to follow Jesus back then. But now, look, here we are. Jesus has gone up to heaven. The world is becoming, or our, our culture, our area of the world is becoming more and more secular. And it looks like we're going to face opposition. Man, this is discouraging. And Jesus isn't even here to help us through it. On the one hand, 
these concepts are enough to fill the heart with sorrow. But Jesus in our passage today says to the disciples and essentially says to us through the record of this conversation, you're only looking at this though from one angle. And that's why your hearts are filled with sorrow. Jesus leaving, he teaches us in this passage today, is actually advantageous to us in another way. And that's our focus this morning. So let's look at the departure of Jesus from that other angle, the other side of the coin. Not that angle which fills our heart with sorrow because it's going to be hard and Jesus isn't going to be here with us. But let's look at it from Jesus' departure from that other angle, which actually provides us with hope and optimism. And first, let's consider verse 5, where Jesus says that nobody has bothered to ask Him where He's going. We remember, back in 14, Jesus said, You know the way to where I'm going. Chapter 14 and verse 4. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? Notice, even there, they didn't ask Him, Where are You going? Even there, they said, Well, how can we know the way if we don't even know the destination? Nobody, up to this point, has even bothered to ask Jesus, Where are You going? When He says, I'm going away, nobody said, Where? The one side was that He's leaving. And this is what the disciples were fixated on. They heard Jesus saying, I'm leaving, I'm going away. And they just focused in on that. They were just stressed because He was not going to be with them. They never bothered to ask, where are you going? But Jesus, the other side to look at it from, is that Jesus was going to the Father. He told them, even though they hadn't asked, He told them in chapter 15 and verse, or pardon me, chapter 14 and verse 28, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. And He told them, He tells them as much in our passage today in chapter 16 and verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. They were all sad. Their hearts were filled with sorrow. They were discouraged because Jesus said, I am going. That's all they could think about. But if they had looked at it from the other end, well, Jesus is going to the Father. They would have had a very different perspective on Jesus leaving. As Jesus said in 14, verse 28, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Let's say, let's say that one of you was working really, really hard in sports and you were going to all of a sudden sign a contract with an American franchise and go pro and leave Barbados. Well, on the one hand, we could be all sad and be like, oh, so-and-so is leaving us. Oh, this is really sad. This is really discouraging. But if you loved him or if you loved her, you would have rejoiced because his departure or her departure for him or her is actually a wonderful thing. It's the, it's the success of what they've been aiming at and working towards. If all of a sudden someone signed with the NBA or the NFL or the MLB or whatever, if we loved them, we would be like, good for you. It's going to be sad for us, but we're happy for you. This is like a dream come true for you. We're happy, not that you're leaving, but we're happy because of where you're going. This is what Jesus meant when He said in 1428, if you loved me, you would have been rejoicing because I'm going to the Father. Jesus left eternal glory to come down to be born as a little baby in Bethlehem. To take on the likeness of sinful flesh. To be made like His brothers in every respect and yet without sin. To, be, to bear with us through our finiteness, through our sinfulness, through our stubbornness, through our confusion, through our doubt, so on and so forth. And Jesus was about to go to the cross the very next day. Remember, this is the eve of His crucifixion. To be pierced for our transgressions. And then Jesus knew that wouldn't be the end. But that He would take up His life again. And then He would ascend back into the heavens 
to the glory that he had before his condescension. If we loved him, if the disciples loved him, they would have been glad that Jesus was ascending again. It was to Jesus' advantage that he go away. And that was his point in verse 28 of chapter 14. But not only was it good for Jesus, it was also good for the disciples. Jesus says here in chapter 16 and verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Again, the one side that the disciples were looking at it from was He's leaving. And this is what His disciples were fixated on. They just couldn't get past it. Oh, Jesus said He's leaving. Our hearts are filled with sorrow. (laughs) But why was He leaving? He was going to procure the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. He was going to procure a benefit for them. Imagine if there was a huge Category 5 hurricane. And we all like hid out. We took shelter, this place or that place. At our house, we actually have a storm room underneath that we would be prepared to go in if there was a Category 5 hurricane. Now, imagine how scary it would have been. I've spoken with people. I've not experienced it myself, but I've spoken with people that have experienced a huge hurricane like that. And they said it was terrifying. Even though they were hidden safely away, they could just hear the wind howling outside. And there's so much uncertainty about what life's going to be like when you're done and everybody's under stress. You're not comfortable. If you're eating anything, you're probably eating like canned sardines and, you know, whatnot, other imperishables. Okay? If after the hurricane passed, I said to my family, okay, I'm leaving, probably my boys would be scared a certain amount. But... It's because they don't understand that I'm actually going out there to improve their situation so that they're actually going to be able to leave the storm shelter and come back into the safety of the home or whatever, right? Eat better food, get better sleep. I'm going to go to prepare a place for them so that where I am, there they may be also. See? It's to their advantage. It wouldn't be to my family's advantage if I just stayed in the storm shelter forever with them. Because that would mean that they're stuck in the storm shelter forever. So not only was it to Jesus' advantage that he go away, but it was to the disciples' advantage that Jesus go away. Because he was going to improve their situation. Right? As I just alluded to, to prepare a place for them. That where he is, there they may be also. And All of these benefits. And the benefit before us this morning is the benefit of pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them. This is the other angle that the disciples were failing to look at Jesus' departure from. If they could look at it from the angle of it's actually going to be better for us because Jesus is going to leave and then pour out His Spirit upon us from on high, their hearts wouldn't have been filled with sorrow the same way. Now, again, we come to this passage here which I've alluded to several times in in preaching over the last few years, but here we actually are. So let me hit this point again. I'm in the minority among the Reformed, but I don't believe that Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated, yes, but indwelt, no. Regenerated means being born again, being made new. God regenerates us. He makes a qualitative change in us. He actually takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We were blind, but now we see. This kind of language is the language of regeneration. And Jesus has taught us in John chapter 3 that unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And yet we read Jesus also saying that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Well, how could, Je- how could Abraham see Jesus' day if he hadn't been born again then? How could he understand about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, and what he would accomplish and have some insight into this if he hadn't been born again? How could any Old Testament saint 
ever have entered the kingdom of heaven without being born again. Of course they were born again. Of course they were regenerated. If they weren't, they would have no spiritual understanding. Because the spiritual, pardon me, the carnal man does not accept the things of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. Without the new birth, no Old Testament saint ever could have entered the kingdom of God. And yet we know that they did. We know that Old Testament saints were saved. Abraham was saved. Right? Jacob was saved. Moses was saved. David was saved. Jeremiah was saved. How could they have been if they weren't born again? Of course they were. Of course they were. God, by His Spirit, worked upon them to change their nature so that they could understand spiritual things and believe and be saved. Now, here's where I think the confusion comes in. People rightly understand that now, at this point in history, you cannot be regenerated without also being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, we read this. Verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So now, at this juncture in history, and at the point when Romans was written, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Which by implication means they haven't been born again. So now what we, the situation we're in, is that everyone who is regenerated, or born again, is also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so I think that this is where people make the error. They go to Romans 8 and they go, see, regeneration and indwelling go together. And what I'm about to tell you is, yes, they do go together after Pentecost. But what we see in this passage today, in verse 7, is that the helper hadn't come yet. Am I right? Just look at the verse. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. I'm sorry, but I just can't get past the language of Scripture on this point. The Reformed tradition is great and all, but above all, we have to be biblical. And when I look at passages like this, Jesus is saying, if we can all, we can all grant that the Helper is the Holy Spirit, right? From the context. Jesus is saying, if I don't go, the Helper will not come to you. The implication is that the Helper had not yet come to them. We look back at John chapter 7 and verse 39. Well, let me read from 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he has said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see? All of the language in this section of John chapters 14 through 16 where we are all of the language is future type language regarding the spirit he will come he is coming you will receive him in verse 16 of chapter 14 Jesus says that he dwells with you and will be in you Verse 17. Oh, sorry, that is verse 17. In verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. So, I believe the way we put it together is like this. That Old Testament believers had God work on them And change their heart. Give them a new heart. Open their spiritual understanding to perceive the things of God. 
so that they could believe and be saved. But God had not yet given His Holy Spirit to live permanently within them. You might look at someone like David and say, well, he obviously was indwelt by the Holy Spirit because he said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. True. I grant that at, at least at times and in places, Old Testament believers were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But I think we have to conclude from the language of the New Testament, and it fits with, even with what David said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think we would have to conclude that it wasn't the normative experience, nor was it the guarantee of the permanent indwelling, abiding of the Holy Spirit. And so, so there was something lacking then in the pre-Pentecost experience of the believer. When Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, the disciples had an immense advantage. Imagine you were doing your devotions tomorrow morning, and if you had a question, you could just walk in the next room and ask Jesus. That would be a big advantage, right? This is what the disciples experienced while Jesus was with them. They had Jesus to ask their questions to. Jesus to teach them. Jesus to instruct them. Jesus to rebuke them and exhort them and confront their sin as He so often did. It was a help and it was a blessing to have Jesus with them. If they also had the Holy Spirit already, first of all, what Jesus says wouldn't make sense. That if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. If they already had the Helper, first of all, that sentence doesn't really make sense. It's robbed of any meaning. Secondly, how would it be to their advantage that Jesus go away? Because what that would mean is that they had the Holy Spirit living within them and Jesus in the next room, and now Jesus leaves. How would that be an advantage? It just doesn't make sense. So what I believe is that the ordinary Old Testament believer did not have the promise and the guarantee and the perpetual abiding, never changing, never fluctuating guarantee of the Holy Spirit always to live within him. Perhaps at times and in places, yes, the Holy Spirit came to indwell someone on an ad hoc basis. You read in the Old Testament things like the Spirit rushed upon him and so on and so forth. But when Jesus left to go to the Father, he poured out his Spirit upon each and every believer in Christ Jesus. So it wasn't just the Davids and the Samsons who had the Spirit of God rush upon them, but it was the Joes and the Bills and the Sams and the Susans and the Esthers and the whoever. It was the ordinary Christians. And He wouldn't just be with them on a fluctuating, temporary, ad hoc basis with the possibility of having Him be taken away, as David was fearful of, take not your Holy Spirit from me. But as Jesus said in verse 16 of chapter 14, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. It wouldn't be the case, as was the case with Jesus, where He was there for part of their lives and then departed. When the Holy Spirit came, He would be with the disciples forever. It would be permanent, irrevocable. And thus, the disciples would be advantaged by Jesus going away. The Holy Spirit would bring comfort, hearkening back to the teaching of John chapter 14. Jesus said, I'm going, but I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I and the Father will make our home with you. This is a comforting truth. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's great comfort in the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit's abiding with us, indwelling us forever. But here, primarily in the passage before us, comfort is not the main focus of the advantage. 
Here, the, the main advantage that Jesus mentions is empowerment. Remember, He has just told them in chapter 15 and verse 27, you also will bear witness. Jesus said to them, you're going to go bear witness to Me in a world that hates you. And I'm not even going to be here as I am right now in the same room as you. I'm not even going to be here to go through it with you. You're going to go bear witness to a world that hates you and I'm not going to be here to help you. Surely, as I mentioned at the beginning, we can understand why the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow. But Jesus then says, but don't worry. You're only looking at this from one angle. Look at it from another angle. I'm going to the Father to pour out the Spirit upon you. And the advantage of the Spirit coming to them with respect to the witness that they were about to bear to the hostile world is unfolded for us in verses 8 through 11 of this passage. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The disciples are going to go into the world and try to tell people that they're sinners. The disciples are going to go into the world and try to tell them that Jesus was not a fraudster, but was who He says He was, even though He was crucified as a Roman criminal. They're going to try to go tell a hostile world that Jesus conquered and is a victor and that He wins over against Satan, even though the last the world has seen of Him was a man hanging on a Roman cross. Well, what an impossible task. You're going to a people that are not predisposed to hear you with a message that sounds pretty crazy. But Jesus says, when the Helper comes, He will convict the world concerning the things that you're going to talk to them about. Concerning sin. Verse 9, because they do not believe in Me. They thought it was no sin to disbelieve in Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the preaching of the apostles, they will be cut to the heart and realize that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom we crucified. And they will be cut to the heart and say, what, what, what must we do? See, this is what happened at Pentecost, isn't it? And that day we're at it about 2,000 souls. Because the Holy Spirit convicted concerning sin. Because they do not believe in Him. Concerning righteousness, verse 10. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I was helped by one commentator who pointed out that the response of the hearers of the Spirit-empowered message would be the same as that of the Roman centurion at Jesus' death. Surely this man was righteous. Surely this man was innocent. In other words, when that Roman nailed Jesus to the cross in the first place, he assumed him a criminal. Like all the other criminals that he had crucified throughout the course of his career as a Roman centurion presiding over the crucifixion of criminals. But by the time Jesus died, he had changed his mind. Wait, this was a righteous man. This is what the Holy Spirit would do in the preaching of the apostles. They would go to a hostile world and proclaim he was no criminal at all. In fact, he was the spotless Lamb of God. And because of the Spirit's ministry, people would say, surely this was a righteous man. Concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. Is Satan unpunished, unchecked, unfettered in his conquest against God and against God's people? No. What Jesus did was triumph over Him at the cross. 
and lead the powers and the principalities in a victory parade with them trailing behind according to Colossians chapter 2. When the world looked at the cross, they didn't see Jesus judging, bringing out victory in the divine law courts, so to speak, rendering a verdict for the saints, for God's people, against the devil. But that's exactly what happened at the cross. Satan made a spurious claim on our souls. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You cannot have them. They are mine. Right? This is what is being promised here in this passage. You disciples are only looking at this from one angle. Your hearts are filled with sorrow because I'm telling you that I'm leaving you and you've got to go bear witness in a hostile world where they're going to hate you. But look at it from another perspective. I am going to the Father, which you should be happy for me, but you should also be happy for you. Because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And He's going to convict the world in and through your preaching concerning the themes that you're preaching about. Sin. They're going to see that they should have believed in me. Righteousness. They're going to understand that I am not a Roman criminal, but I am the spotless Lamb of God. Judgment. They're going to understand that I've conquered over Satan. I have judged him. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Jesus is teaching them that if you look at it from another angle, the coming of the Holy Spirit will make your witness effective. And you should actually be encouraged by that. This is the theme of verses 8 to 11. Now, in verse 12, Jesus moves on and says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, will speak. He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. In verses 14 and 15, we see, as is typical in John, a tight Trinitarianism. What is the Father's is the Son's. And the Spirit isn't doing something different than what the Father and the Son are doing, but the Spirit takes what is the Son's and declares it to them. And what is the Son's is the Father's. Right? So there's not, like, there really shouldn't be, I said there's not, but I was trying to clarify, there shouldn't be churches that are like Jesus churches. And churches that are Holy Spirit churches. And churches that are the Father churches. This is, this is all a mistake in Trinitarianism. If you go to a church and all they talk about is the Father and the Father's heart and the Father's love and there's nothing about the Son, nothing about the Spirit, there's a, there's a, a functional neglect of the Trinity. If you go to a church and all they talk about is Jesus and His death on the cross and His resurrection, there's a functional defect in their Trinitarianism. If you go to a church and all they talk about is the Spirit and new revelation and fresh things that God is doing, there's a neglect in functional Trinitarianism. We see in the Bible tight Trinitarianism. What the Father's doing, the Son's doing, and the Spirit is doing. And so there should be in balance and proportion talk about the Father, talk about the Son, talk about the Spirit. Understanding that even the triune God's plan is Christ-centered. Understanding that it is in Christ that all the fullness of God that He desires to pour out on us comes to us. So there should be a correct kind of Christ-centeredness. But it shouldn't be Christ-centeredness at the expense of the Father or at the expense of the Spirit. That's a bit of an aside, but I want to point that out again as we move through this section of Jesus' teaching, which is tightly Trinitarian. But Jesus goes on in verses 12 and 13 to speak of more of the benefits of the coming Spirit. And He's teaching the disciples here that the Spirit is going to bring them new revelation. There are things that Jesus hasn't said to them yet which they nevertheless need to hear and need to be taught. 
And when the Spirit of truth comes, verse 13, He will guide you into all the truth. The immediate context here is that Jesus is speaking to the apostles. Remember that Judas has already left the room, by the way, to betray Jesus. So here we have the apostles, minus Matthias, who will be added later, and Paul. But we have the core of the apostolic team. Now, this whole passage, Jesus' upper room discourse, is relevant to us in its entirety. There is not one verse which is not relevant to us in what Jesus teaches in the upper room discourse. But it is sometimes relevant to us directly, and it's sometimes relevant to us indirectly. Let me explain that. There are universals in this discourse which are applicable to all people everywhere. Remember that even though we're taking weeks and weeks and probably months and months by the time we're done to go through chapters 14 to 17, remember that this is all Jesus teaching on one night. Right? So when I say, when I'm referring back to 14 to make my point, chapter 14 to make my point, I'm not referring to a different passage of Scripture, but this one, right? So take, for example, chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an example of a universal statement. So if someone in our day and age says, well, I'm going to the Father another way, we can say, no, no, no. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So that's, that's a universal, that's directly applicable to everyone. Or in chapter 15, in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Or, sorry, that's a specific. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, no one... Uh, sorry, I lost my spot here. One sec. In chapter 15 and verse 5. No, verse 4. Chapter 15 and verse 4. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. That's another example of a universal. So if someone's like, no, 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 a tree branch really can bear fruit even if it's not connected to the tree. Well, they're just wrong. And likewise, no one can bear spiritual fruit unless they're connected to Jesus. So that's a universal. It's directly applicable to all people everywhere. Okay? But now there are specifics. And now we come to the verse that I said accidentally a moment ago. Chapter 15 and verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Well, can we go into a room full of unbelievers and tell them, Already you are clean because of the word Jesus has spoken to you? No. So it's applicable, pardon me, it's relevant to us because we can understand that you don't become clean by bearing fruit. You become clean by the word that Jesus speaks to you and receiving that with faith. So we see what Jesus says to the apostles and we learn from it. But it's not directly and immediately applicable to all people everywhere. Another example of a specific, chapter 16 and verse 2. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Well, I alluded last week to the idea that we may well experience literal physical persecution in our generation, like in our day and age. Our culture is very quickly secularizing. In Canada, they're passing laws making standard historical Christian doctrine hate crimes. Just saying it. Literally just preaching faithfully is now a hate crime in Canada. So we're getting to that point where we really might start experiencing this. But in the West, our grandparents' generation didn't experience that. Nobody was persecuted on account of the name. Well, I can't say nobody, probably somebody was. But what I mean is there wasn't widespread systematic persecution of Christians in the West in our grandparents' generation, right? So they lived their whole life without an hour coming where whoever kills them thought that they were doing a service to God, right? So that wouldn't be directly applicable to them. But it's still relevant to them because they still need to understand the hatred of the world 
and that there are religious people who think that stamping out Christianity is actually doing a service to God. And this could teach them about persecution in other parts of the world, which is happening today and did happen in our grandparents' generation in other parts of the world, right? We can prepare ourselves for the possibility that this might happen because it did happen. But when Jesus was talking to the apostles, he was literally telling them, like, within a few weeks, people are going to start trying to kill you, right? So there are things in this passage which are directly applicable because they're universal principles. And then there are things that are still relevant to us, but they're applied indirectly. And we have to say, what did this mean to the apostles first who heard what Jesus was saying? So now we circle back to where Jesus says here in verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The apostles were going to receive the rest of the revelation that God had for mankind. Which we couldn't, they couldn't bear at this time that Jesus was talking to them in the upper room. And they were going to receive that revelation through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit literally told them what to write in their epistles and stuff. I don't mean, that, I don't mean by, by means of dictation. But what I mean is they weren't drawing inferences. They weren't working out implications of what they had seen and what they had heard Jesus teach. They were literally recipients of new revelation. And so the Holy Spirit taught them new things that they didn't understand at this time. It wasn't just a matter of Him helping them grasp what had already been revealed. He was actually revealing new stuff to them. And they wrote that stuff down in their own words, in their own style, I'm talking about the theory of inspiration here, right? In terms of how it happened. But what they wrote became Scripture, was the very words of God, right? And so just as God had revealed Himself long ago at many times and in many ways, so in the person of His Son, He revealed Himself most fully. If Genesis chapter 1-1 was like the beginning of a sunrise little bit of light, little bit of revelation. More and more revelation came until Jesus Christ came on the scene like the noonday sun and everything was fully revealed. But if we stopped our Bibles after John, there's so much that we wouldn't understand about the Christ. So though the Christ was the fullness of revelation according to Hebrews chapter 1, we wouldn't properly understand the Christ without the Holy Spirit teaching the apostles about the Christ and the implications of His person and His work, which they unfolded for us in like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc., etc. Right? So, Revelation reached its destination in Christ. Its end point. There is no higher and fuller revelation than Christ Jesus. Remember, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Him. There isn't better, higher revelation. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is cool, but what about new revelation? That's not a thing. Okay? The fullest revelation is the revelation of Christ Jesus. But what happened was that the disciples couldn't take it all in through Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus had many things to say to them, but they couldn't bear it now. But when the Spirit came, He guided them into all the truth. And so, they wrote for us all the things that Jesus had to reveal about Himself, about His Father's plan, about the work of His Spirit, which was yet to, or who was yet to be poured out. The disciples eventually received this revelation and recorded it and wrote it for us. So we don't read verses 12 and 13 and say, oh, well, God still has many things to say to me, but I cannot bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit comes to me, He will guide me into all truth. Right? We don't do that with this because this is a specific rather than a universal. But we understand that the disciples were confused at this point. They didn't understand lots of things. 
there was much that they hadn't yet received. But when the Spirit came, they were no longer confused anymore. But they understood and they realized and they wrote these things down for us. So we actually are beneficiaries of Jesus going away and pouring the Spirit upon the apostles because then they wrote and they taught what the church needed to hear. See? So we, like the disciples, find verses 12 and 13 relevant, but we find verses 12 and 13 relevant to us in different ways than it was relevant to the disciples, namely, indirectly. So... I'm going to tie this up. The disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow because they were about to go into a hostile world to bear witness to Jesus. And Jesus wasn't even going to be with them to help them. So they were really stressed out about that and their hearts were filled with sorrow. But Jesus is basically saying here, you're only looking at this from one angle. Look at it from another perspective. I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you, who will make your witness effective. And when you preach about sin, the sin of your hearers, and the righteousness of Christ, and the judgment of Christ over Satan at the cross, the Holy Spirit's going to take that, and is going to make that effective. And the Holy Spirit's going to help you understand then what you don't understand now. And so it's actually going to be to your advantage that I go away. The disciples should have been encouraged by what Jesus was teaching here. Later that night, however, they all ran. They left Jesus later that night. Remember, and Jesus went through the trial alone. There was no steel in their spine yet. Okay? Because Jesus was arrested in the garden and they thought that they were ultimately going to be losers for associating with Jesus. They were worried that they were going to ultimately be losers for associating with Jesus. They were not yet prepared to go to a hostile world to identify with Jesus and to bear witness to Him. Right? But when the Holy Spirit came, what happened? Peter stood up and in front of a massive crowd of which 2,000 people were saved, which means there was at least 2,000 people there if 100% were saved and it wasn't likely 100%. So thousands of people were there and Peter stands up boldly and says, Know then for certain God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus confrontational here, whom you crucified. Look how bold Peter is now that the Helper has come. You see? And then the apostles preach and teach and lead with reckless abandon throughout the rest of their lives because the Helper has come. And they've had the advantage of the Helper coming. And He's taught them. Look, when Jesus came to this world, He came to live A righteous life that we should have lived but didn't. So that we could receive His righteousness as a gift. Like clean clothes to put on in the place of the clothes that we've soiled. When Jesus came and died on the cross, it was not because He lost. It wasn't because Satan got the upper hand. It wasn't because the Romans got the upper hand. It wasn't because the Sanhedrin got the upper hand. It was because He was laying His life down for His friends. He was the Good Shepherd, shepherding His sheep at the cross to protect them, to take care of them. Because we deserve to bear the wrath of God, but we would have spent eternity exhausting ourselves under the wrath of God and yet never find God's wrath justly satisfied for our sin. But Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved upon the cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't a figment of anyone's imagination. It wasn't a spiritual rising in our hearts. We saw Him. He ate a piece of fish. He is alive. Even Thomas here who doubted put his hands in the holes 
of Jesus' palms where he was crucified. The Helper has come and has helped us to understand these things. And so we are not afraid anymore of a hostile world which hates us. And we're prepared now to go into the world and to bear witness for Christ. And we understand that we're not actually disadvantaged by Jesus' ascension, but we're actually greatly advantaged by it. This is what eventually happened to the disciples and what was the eventual response of their hearts when the Helper was poured out. By the help of that same Helper, we should understand why Jesus came and lived and died and rose. We likewise should understand that we are not going to be ultimately losers for identifying with Jesus, but great winners. We should understand that it is not to our disadvantage to live in the 21st century in Barbados as opposed to 1st century Israel in that we don't have Jesus physically, bodily beside us because we have Jesus with us by His Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have come to make their home with us. We are indwelt. And this is to our advantage because we now understand the things that the disciples, even on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, didn't understand after being with Him for a few years under His direct teaching. We can understand. We can appreciate. So we should therefore, in response to what Jesus teaches in this passage, we should likewise look at Jesus' ascension from a different angle. It's not to the disadvantage of God's people. It's not to the disadvantage of God's church that Christ ascend. Look at it from this other angle. It has been advantageous that Jesus has ascended because He's poured out His Spirit upon us and He's taught the apostles and the prophets who in turn taught us. And He's still empowering our witness as we go. He's convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So we know that even though the world hates us, as we go, the Spirit is there to help us and to bring people to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, even in the 21st century, as He did in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the opposition, in the first century, as the disciples went after Pentecost with God's Word to the ends of the earth.